Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. Now, to tell you something, people, I talked about that mouse problem I have. This mouse has still not left. And I got traps. And as you know, you told me, I told you Joanne didn't believe. She thought I was making up about the mouse. But then she saw the mouse and scared the crap out of her. So I got these two little traps. And I don't want to get the glue because that's that's mean. So I got these little traps and I was going to get the kinds that you can catch them and put them outside, but then it's just going to come back in. So we come back Friday from her nephew's graduation present uh, party and I'm a little bit buzzed and it comes running out of the bedroom and comes into my office and now I can't find it. So what makes it even worse is last night we're watching TV and we hear it in a paper bag in the kitchen and this mouse is so stupid that it doesn't go into like the garbage bag where there might be, I don't know, crumbs. It goes into the recycling bag, which Joanne cleans everything so it gets nothing. So not only do I have an annoying mouse, I have the world's stupidest mouse because it just it sits, in, I think, in the recycling bin. And I'm afraid to take the bag out because I'm, I'm scared shitless of mouse, mice. Anyway, we have a great show. Uh, me and this uh, guest, we've been going back and forth for a while. And I finally got her to come on. And her name is Tammy Pescatelli. How you doing, Tammy? I'm great, thank you. I know it's been super hard. Thanks for bearing with me with my schedule and stuff. Well, it's good, though. You're busy, so that's always a good thing. Yeah, you know, it is great to be busy, but that's a blessing and a curse. <laughs> you know, sometimes you're like, I'd like to take five minutes to just do something by myself. I'm not even, I can't even go to the bathroom by myself. Someone's always pounding on the door, like, what are you doing in there? <laughs> now, you said you live in two different places. How long have you lived in two different places? Uh, since, so I got pregnant in 2008, uh, my husband and I met in Los Angeles, I'm from Cleveland, he's from Brooklyn, and we moved to New York, uh, in order to have our baby back to Brooklyn, and it, uh, I moved to one house next door to my mother-in-law, so pretty much since that day, <laughs> because then I was like, when I came home one day and she had changed my furniture because she got new furniture, <laughs> When I was on the road, that was the day I, I took my son and said, I'm going to this house in Pennsylvania. I always had a getaway house. And then we got a television show from here, and that's just it. So we stay here, and he has a normal life during the school year. And then in the summer, go to New York. How is it when you and your Italian mother-in-law get together? Because I know like when we moved back to New Jersey, me and Joanne had to stay with her mom for seven days for a moving van got here. And when you have two, like it's a mother and a daughter Italian, they, you just clash. It's it's all out of love, but you just clash. And you know, if they're cooking, you stay the hell out of the kitchen. But for you, what is it like with the mother-in-law? Well, it's hard because she, like, she didn't grow up with her mother and she didn't have a daughter. So she doesn't understand, like, also the fact that I was a grown woman. When you have your own mother as a woman, like, you can... You can tell your mother, Ma, back off, okay? You can't really tell your mother all that because she took a lot of stuff to heart. Plus, because I don't cook, like I do everything else, I still do. I got off stage on The Tonight Show and came home and did laundry. I still do The Tonight Show and the laundry. and the, You know what I mean? Just because I don't cook, it just was, I always thought when I was growing up in my Italian household, if I learned how to cook, it would immediately meant I had to grow a mustache and have a baby, you know? So it just became something that wasn't important to me. And that's her self-worth, her food. So when she saw that I didn't cook, she almost thought like I had no worth at all. It was the craziest thing. Not to mention, she'd never had a job in her life. Right. <laughs> so, like, you know, she thought, like, I would, originally, 
she literally thought, like, I would go on the road to, you know, a corporate show or whatever, theater show, and she would say, uh, I hope you have a nice vacation. I'm like, I'm not going on vacation. This is my job. And then one weird year, I know she was nosy, so we had our taxes done. And she stays upstairs, and her room, or the guest room, is off the office. And the taxes were on my desk. And I'm so neat and organized from traveling that, like, I know how I set things. I set things one way or another. And plus, I had brothers who used to sneak in my room and try to destroy things. So you, Anne lived in condos, so you set traps to tell who's been in your stuff. <laughs> and she saw our taxes, and I think she saw how much money I made. And then her life, then she changed towards me. <laughs> I'm like, I think she thought I was going on vacation spending money instead yeah. of making money. It's like, yeah, she goes and she does open mics. And she probably thought, oh, it's as people say, she goes and does a little skit. And then she spends money during the day. Yeah, I don't think she got, like, granted, now don't forget, too, we're dealing with a language barrier. But she figured if you weren't, like, she didn't know who I was when, the, when we got married. So... I must not have been successful. Like, people seem to think the only comedians that are successful are the ones that everybody knows, you know? And they are successful, but they're, they're, they're crazy successful. There are other people that are working, making really good livings, you know, just being in the comedy community. Exactly. So now you grew up in Cleveland, and you grew up, as you said, I think you had four brothers, I believe, or a big family. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, big family. Three, fam three brothers. And then I had 11 first cousins, all boys that were, you know, older than me. So it was always tough, you know. Now, when did you start to decide or, or learn that you were funny? Or when did this idea to do comedy start coming to your head? I mean, were you a young kid? Did you say, I want to act? Or I mean, what went through a little, a little Tammy Pescatelli? Well, there were like two different things that happened. Like, I always hung with the boys. Um, but, you know, they get physically, it just is what it is, faster, stronger, right? So uh, my mouth got stronger. So when they would punch me, I would say something that would hurt like a punch. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that's what helped me always with hecklers. That's why I win in heckling situations always, unless you physically come at me, because that's I can say stuff. It's, sadly, it's also one of the points I went to therapy to not say such evil things to people. Um, but also, I think for me, I just I wanted to laugh and I laughed at comics for a long time before it clicked to me that I could be a comedian you know and that was only on a dare so you when you got out of high school what were your plans um I had already asked I in 9th 10th grade I asked my my uh, guidance counselor I was like I want to be an actress she said no one from here has ever done this because I was in the suburb of Cleveland and she's like, no one has ever done that. So you need to go to school. You dress nice. Let's go for fashion design. So I went to school for fashion design. I had graduated. was going to go do an internship in New York, oddly enough. Um, so I had the summer off. My parents had moved from the Cleveland area to this weird little four-town quad city area. It's called. It's two towns in Iowa and two towns in Illinois. They had a funny bone um, that I had a... VIP passed to because it was owned by the Cleveland Improv owner. Okay? All this, it's such serendipity. 
So I thought, you know what? Um, I'm going to get a job there for the summer because I'm 21. I don't know how I'm going to meet people. Uh, I'll wait tables, make a little money, and get to see some stand-up because I was the one who had, you know, I, I know Eddie Murphy's first two albums by heart, and I'm not talking about Delirious and Raw. I'm talking about Eddie Murphy and Delirious, you know? Right. And um, I'm waiting tables. I'm literally going to spend three months there. And uh, this woman came through, this female comic who sadly was not funny. And, you know, just with the bravado of a 21-year-old girl, I was like, I'm just as funny as that. And some of the people around were like, yeah, let's see it. There's an open mic. And I'm like, what do you bet me? You know, then they took up a collection. It was like 250 bucks. And I was the world's worst waitress. I'd never seen $250. So I was like, I'll do it. And that was it. Sponsored by a radio station. They hired me to do a morning show, and I never went to New York. I became a house MC at night, and there you go. What did you write about the first time on stage? I mean, what was your, what were you going at? Because everyone changes. Like when I did stand up, you know, my first time on stage, I used to write one liners and I, I did well. And then I came back the second time and I ate crap and then I didn't come back for, you know, a few months. But then eventually you go back and get back on the horse. But, you know, you write, you know, when I started, I was 23. So you're writing stuff, a 23 year old knows. What were you writing? Because, you know, what were you writing about back then? And how did you do in those first few months? You know, I actually did okay because I, I stayed within my wheelhouse, which is key. And then there was a part of my career that I stepped out of the wheelhouse and I had to take myself back in. I talked about what I knew. And at that time, the first joke I ever wrote, I didn't know was a joke. Um, you know, there weren't a lot of, you know, breast implants were not popular. And I've always had, you know, bigger breasts and guys would come up to me. In nightclubs, you know, rude guys and go, are those real? And I used to say, don't you think if I'd have had the money, I'd have had my nose fixed first. Okay. Okay. And that was like my first joke. And then I kind of built off of there about like an Italian nose and my crazy family. And I remember telling, I had some joke. I mean, I even had a joke about Dom DeLuise. Like, I don't know. I just had random little humorous, sarcastic observations, family stuff. And then, you know... Even years later, when I was on Last Comic, I got a lot of crap because people go, oh, she talks about being Italian. Quite frankly, it was all I knew because the 10 years that I had been on the road prior to that, I talked at people and did nothing except for travel and live in condos with other comics. So, you know, and by the way, I was thrilled that people had, didn't even notice I was a woman. I'm like, okay, I'll take that. You didn't talk, <laughs> think I was a chick. Um, and then... And then now it's exactly what I talk about, what I know, but it's a different part of my family. It's my husband, and I don't really talk about my kid because he didn't sign up for it, but dealing with being a parent and, you know, that kind of stuff. So Now, you said you uh, you were house MC, and it was with a funny bone, so back then, what year was this? No, I was back. I moved back. So, yeah, I was a house MC. That's what happened. So for two years, so 94 and 95, I'm like, um, or, I'm sorry, 90. 93 and 94, I'm like a house MC and I do a morning show in a place called the Quad City. All right. And that's just how, like, I literally leave the radio station. I go into the radio station at five o'clock in the morning, do the morning show, get off at 11 o'clock. I'm at the Funny Bone and I'm making phone calls um, for them to get groups in. All right. I mean, I, I didn't skip a step. So you'd get paid. They call it cold calling and you get groups to come in. And I used to go, 
uh, you know, most people call like, so you call the teachers, or you call the, the nurses or something at the hospital. I would skip over the teachers. I'd call and ask for the bus garage and go, hey, you know, it's National Bus Driver Week. Why don't you guys come out? And I would get like a quarter ahead if people came out to the show based on my phone call. So then I'd uh, MC at night. And then uh, two years into that, I quit and uh, quit all those and just became a full-time comic and moved back to Cleveland and then lived in Cleveland from 20, uh, from like, yeah, like 25 until I was, or 24 until I was uh, 30 and moved to Los Angeles. Now, what was the Cleveland scene? I mean, I, I guess back then there was, what, uh, uh, hilarities? And, I mean, was there a thriving scene when you moved back to Cleveland, or is that when you started to get on the road? No, well, yes, and both things. Immediately went on the road, because one of the cool things at the time about working for the Funny Bones was that the Funny Bones and the Improvs, like Mitch Kutash, who owned the Cleveland Improv, was also partners in 14 Funny Bones and three Improvs. So immediately you went on the road with all of those clubs and you could work them as an MC twice a year, plus other chains. And it was so cool. So when I moved back to Cleveland, I lived right downtown. There was an improv and hilarities. You could work both of those. So that, you know, that was good, of course, to stay home for those weeks. But Ohio people like our city and I were talking about this. Ohio people got to be good comics because you could drive two hours in any direction and hit a really good comedy club, a really nice paying gig. So I could go to Detroit, or I could go to Erie, I could go to Buffalo, I could go to Pittsburgh, I could go to Columbus. Uh, you go a little bit further and go down to Cincinnati, and, and you go a little further to Indianapolis, but you had it. You could drive anywhere and hit these other clubs. So it was great. It was great training ground. Now you're working as an MC at these clubs. You're going out on the road. Now when you start building up your act where you start to get to that feature position? Because I know sometimes that's a hard transition. Right. So one of the cool things is when I moved back to Cleveland and, uh, you know, of course you live there, so you become one of the favorites of the owners to help you. And I was really lucky that they would put me in front of like, I became the MC for the special engagement. So, but sometimes it was hard too, because um, the woman who was in charge at the time, her, her name was Sarah Nye. She was, always put me in front of all the urban acts. And I'm like, you know how hard this is? I'm a young white girl. In front of and there, she was like, you got to work it. You want to work this? You're going to have to be tough. So it kind of helped me really toughen up and find my persona. But um, so guys like D.L. Hughley or George Lopez or John Panette, Don Myrera, they took me on the road with them. And that's how I began to feature because they would bring me out to feature for them. So when you came out for a special engagement, uh, as a feature, then I was quick to book work back as a feature act. Okay, so now you're doing the work, you're getting you're getting more work. Now, when you said you eventually moved to LA, when did you decide to move to LA? And was there a time that you said I have to move, or what happened with that? Yeah, well, you know, kind of wasn't. It was less even about comedy and more about life, because at a certain point it was all cool until about like twenty nine years old. I realized that all my friends were getting married. And it was just not my path. And I'm like, you're getting married and I'm in St. Louis, you know, or you, I'm doing a third show Saturday while you guys are toasting to yourself. And it's just not my path. So I thought, no better time like the present. Let's go to Los Angeles. And at that time, I had worked myself up to a split week headliner. Um, 
you know, of course I know you know, but like for people listening, that means like a big headliner will come in at the time, for example, Lopez. Lopez didn't want to work uh, Thursday through, well, the clubs are Wednesday through Sunday. He would come in for Friday, Saturday. So I'd work Wednesday, Thursday, Sunday as the headliner and then feature for him on the weekends. So you're doing that, and then you're you're 29, you know, you're away on the road. Because I know when I did stand-up, I was on the road for like six years, and I, I think I had one weekend off. And, of course, that was from 88 to 94, 95, when there was clubs in the Philadelphia area everywhere, so you always worked. And yeah. You, you did miss a lot of stuff. So you sat there, you were in St. Louis, so what made you then sit there? Life brought you to L.A. What made you go to L.A. in your life? Well, I just think that part of life, I realized that L.A. had a lot of single people. I kept visiting L.A. with friends, and it seemed like that was a place to be. I went to, um, I was involved in the Chicago Comedy Festival, and there was a manager. Uh, her name was Randy Siegel, still is Randy Siegel. Um, she had Jimmy Fallon at the time and a bunch of other comics, and she said, if you get to L.A., I'll manage you, but I can't manage you from Los Angeles. So I moved to L.A. and I get there. And don't forget, like, it's not like there's cell phone communication or email, really. You know what I mean? It's a real, this is this is literally the turn of the century, you know. And uh, I get to L.A. and I call her when I'm there. And she's like, oh, I'm out of the business. <laughs> great, <laughs> great, great. So uh, and she and I are friends to this day. And I, I often I tell her I blame her. But then it became the the bounce. Then then you start again uh, because even though I'm on the road and I realized, you know, that I moved to Los Angeles, being what, you know, already being what I wanted to be, I needed to learn how to take it to a bigger, better. So because I was already affiliated with the improvs, I was able to step right in with the improv lineup, which was wonderful. But then I had to get past at the Laugh Factory and I had to get past at the Comedy Store and. Oddly enough, the comedy store really became my home. Now, how many times did it take you to get past? I mean, the improv, you just went in, but, you know, were you some, because I know there's people who were on the road, and they still haven't gotten in. You know, they've been in L.A. for two years. They still haven't gotten into these clubs. Did you make it pretty quick into these clubs besides the improv? Yes, I did. Um, I, I literally went to, here's what kept happening to me. I went to the comedy store once. Um, to get, you know, to be seen by Mitzi, and she didn't make it that night. So then I went back. I was really bummed, and Joey Diaz was the host of the show that night. And he was like, come back next Monday. Just come back next Monday. I'm like, I don't have a spot for next Monday. I have a spot for this Monday. And he's like, you come back next Monday, and uh, I'll make sure you get a spot. He goes, I'm hosting it. So sure enough, I went back that Monday, and she was there, and she passed me that night. And then I stayed up all night praying for her to make sure that she remembered to tell Duncan, Duncan Trussell was the uh, booker at the time, to tell him so that I could now be a paid regular at the comedy store. And then the, that was a funny night, too, because she called me to sit with her after the show, after I got off stage. And I sat with her the whole night, and I felt like it was having an audience with the Pope. Like, I, I knew Polly. <laughs> I knew Polly from working with him 500 times. I knew the stories of Mitzi. But it was a really cool thing to watch the comics pay no mind to me when I was there, when I was going to get on stage. Nobody acknowledged me. Nobody said anything. 
But once I sat with Mitzi when I walked out to the parking lot, everybody wanted to talk to me. It was fun. That's <laughs> that's funny. Now, would you? Uh, what I mean, back uh, as you said, it was like two thousand. That was two thousand and one when I got there because I got to. Los Angeles in 2001, and we had September 11th, and I'm very blessed that that Comedy Store family became my family. Like, my group of guys, uh, Sebastian Maniscalco, Brett Ernst, John Caparulo, uh, Bobby Lee, Ari Shafir, I've mentioned Duncan already, Rogan, Joey Diaz, that's my group. Like, I was lucky to be their sister, and there weren't a lot of women hanging out at the club at that time. So I was really, really lucky to be part of that. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the women aspect, because I know when I when I was in Philly, I think we didn't really have hardly any women back then. And, you know, and then the headliners would come into the clubs be like the Wendy Liebmans and the Kathy Ladmans, you know, those and the New York females. But what was it like for you? Because back then there wasn't a lot of females. And now, I mean, I used to host a show in L.A. when I would screw around the comedy a few years back called Cooper's Angels. Well, Cooper, Cooper's Angels where I'd have eight female comics. And I ran this for like five months every two weeks. And I never had a problem getting female comics but back then there wasn't a lot of females so did you do you think it made it easier for you to get stage time because there wasn't so many females Mm, i don't know it's like it's funny because i don't know we never got a chance to work together so i wasn't really sure exactly how many there were or weren't because until you got to los angeles or new york they never really put two women on a show you know um but you know the the thing is, is I never tried to be a chick, and I didn't grow up girly, so it was a weird thing for me. I never, uh, I just had this whole conversation. I got challenged on, on the female comedy thing because all these, these, these controversies seem right. to be happening with a lot of these female comics, and I, I just said, look, from my point of view, and some of my friends that I know that are female comics, we were just trying to be comics, so like we didn't lead with female. I know that that I had to get on stage in basically a burqa when I was a young girl who, you know, I mean, I was no supermodel, don't get me wrong, but, you know, I also know that when they did Funny Women of Playboy and they asked me and I had 20, they offered $25,000 and I hadn't even made that in my life, I had to turn it down because I wanted to be a comic. Besides, let's set my father and brothers out of the equation, you know, um, because Playboy had a little bit different connotation than it does now. Now I, you know, now I wish I'd have done it just to see that I looked like that at one point in my <laughs> life. But you know, now my goal is just to die before my breast hits for us. But I'm just saying, like I don't, uh, we did. I didn't want to do it because I knew that I who would take me seriously. That's what I thought. And now it's a different. It's a different game. Girls are posing, you know, naked on their album covers. So uh, I can't judge that. I just it's a different. It's a different beast, and I gotta think that I'm part of that change. You know, I, I think that I gotta, in a way, whether I meant to or not, that we changed it. Now we'll see if that's good or bad. Yeah, I think. Well, it's also 
years ago, it was just all about comedy because it was before there was theme nights, just before that. So you're right. Everyone, there wasn't black comics. There wasn't white comics. There wasn't female comics. It was just all comics. And now it seems there's been a lot of off-grouping, and you're right, a lot of bickering starts. And I mean, back then, the only thing that us comics bick bickered about was if you heard someone stole your bit. And of course, you couldn't sit there and call them out on Facebook like a troll. If you saw them at a club, you'd call them out, and they'd always be like, you know, it'd be face-to-face. -face. Well, by the way, that's one of the things, Steve, though, that not we didn't have to do it. If someone took your bit, someone else would have told them. Right. Because there was an honor among comics. And it was not even to be catty or to be jealous or to be rude. You would do it for your friends. There are a million friends, not a million, but, you know, there are friends that I had that I'm like, eh, I don't know if you should do that bit. So-and-so has a bit similar. Because we didn't have all the avenues that we have now to watch things. So we knew because we worked with this person or that person, you know. So we would say, hey, uh, that bit is. So, or maybe you saw that they did that on night flight, <laughs> whatever, <Right>. you know. <laughs> so it, they, they wouldn't have gotten away with it the way they do now. And I think because there are so many comics, the rules in society have changed. People don't understand. You know that people still don't get that comedy isn't just knock, knock, who's there kind of things. Like they think that like jokes are interchangeable and and that, you know, if someone does the joke better, that they're the ones who are supposed to be doing it. Like, that's what the average person thinks. But comics were supposed to be greater than that. Well, it's also you know? the comics now, and I, I mean, I'm, just, I'm making a generalization, which I shouldn't make, but a lot of them I met really don't know the history of comedy. Like, our generation, you know, Agreed. we knew. Like, I sit there, I'm very good friends with Rich Scheidner, and I was talking to some guy who does this podcast, and he's putting these comics up. He goes, I need good guests. I said, well, my friend Rich is promoting a book. This guy had no idea who Rich Scheidner was. Well, if you're a comic, and, you know, you're in a road, and you want to go on a road, Rich Scheidner's sort of a king of the road, you know? And I was like, how do you not, how do you not, even I talked to a female comic who didn't know who Wendy Liebman was. I'm like, how do you not know who Wendy is? You know, it's like Rich, she's one of the best yeah. comics. I mean, not even just female comics. She's one of the best comics in the last just 30 comics. years. And that's what amazes me. Like, I think for our group, you know, and you're, I think, a class they would say behind me, we knew the acts and we took pride in knowing comedy because it was a bonding point. Steve, I'm telling you, like, I literally, I popped in um, the improv about, I don't know, about a month ago, and it was some set that they, some, you know, show that they put together, some, you know, I think they do kind of like bringer shows now if you compact the room at your night. But I have a little bit of privilege, so I'm not trying to pimp anybody. I'm not trying to jump in in front of... I just... I needed to run a quick set, five minutes, and I said, I hope you don't mind. And you could tell that the guy really didn't, you know, like he had no clue who I was. I was just this old, older lady trying to jump in on his <laughs> night. And the manager was like, no, Tammy's doing the set, and I want... The manager was like, Tammy should do it this time, and we're going to put her in here and break it in... I was like, whatever, I go, appreciate it, I just really need it, I need the set. Now, I didn't want to tell him I needed it because I need it to practice because to, I'm trying to put it together for uh, a development deal. I'm not trying to brag, I don't want to say, you know what I mean? I just right. like, I just need to do set, okay? So, I get off stage, I have a, a, a good set. I'm never like a, I'm a crusher, but it was, listen, I'm a 23-year-old veteran, I know how to put together a five-minute set. If I can't put a five-minute set together that makes people 
very happy that I'm an idiot and I need to go do something else. I get off stage. This guy says to me, oh, my God, that was amazing. He goes, I, I, how long you been doing this? And I just go, oh, this is my first time. And I, and I walked out. Well, that happened. Because I'm... you know what? You don't, you don't have to know. I don't expect my next-door neighbor in Pennsylvania to have known my comedy career. But if you're a comic, you should know my comedy career. Oh, yeah. And it's not about me. You should know who comes before you. You should turn on Netflix, and you should watch every person's special on Netflix. I know. It's, it's you know, crazy. Now they're putting a whole bunch, but there's about 40, really, in total. So if you don't know it, you shouldn't be in there. Don't be. You have a night. I know it's crazy. It's just changed. It used to. I mean, the, the whole bringer concept. It wasn't around when I did it. I mean, in Philadelphia, we would show up to the open mic, and you know, you would sit there, and there'd always be a crowd. And every club, you, I came back, and I, I opened uh, for my friend Joe Matarese over at Helium in Philly. And it, yeah, was, yeah. it was packed like a Saturday. They didn't say, hey, can you bring anyone? I, I worked from Thursday and I worked on Saturday. And Saturday, you show up, they feed you, you go up, you do 15 minutes, I would open for them. And there's 200 people there. And it's like, it's just common sense. But now it's like everything's bringer so anybody can get on stage. Well, that's Los Angeles and New York. And not even really New York because some of those New York clubs aren't playing that. But that's LA because that's also the place where. I used to get angry when I first got there. When they had to back up off of it, they'd be like, uh, what are you doing? Oh, I'm a comic. Oh, yeah, me too. And I'm like, well, where do you work? Oh, there's this coffee shop. And, right. and I'm like, no, no, I really, this is how I pay my taxes. Like, I used to get angry. <laughs> like, there was the whole concept of what makes you a comic. And, I, and you know, I used to be really hardcore. I would argue with my husband about it, who who was a paid regular at the comedy store, but really made his living from acting and directing. And we would often have these arguments about, you're not a comic because you don't make your living as a comic. You you know, <laughs> right? But now I'm a little bit easier on that. The older you get, the less passionate you care about stuff that doesn't really even affect you. Right. <laughs> Whatever. Bitter, I don't care what you call, you call the, me. The bitterness you call leaves. me a janitor as long as you <laughs> let me do the same job. I don't really care what you call me. So, so you're back, you're in L.A., and now when you're in L.A., are you going out on the road, or how does it all start where you end up getting last comic standing? Uh, I know, I, yeah, I was going on the road. I always stayed a comic. That was, that was the beauty, but it almost broke me because I wasn't really making enough as a, as a split-week feature, or split-week headliner, to, uh, to, to live in Los Angeles and travel. But being home at the comedy store sometimes... Mitzi was really good to put me in the main room on Saturdays because she knew I was broke and trying to help me. So, you know, and I found a way. Like, I lived with a, my, my best friend I moved out there with is a hairdresser, and I learned how to make hair weaves, and I sold pizzales, Italian cookies to coffee <laughs> chefs, anything so I could still be a comic. Because in my brain, I felt like if I got a real job, any kind of job, even waiting tables, I would have felt less successful because I moved out there being a comic. You know what I mean? It was okay when I started, but so anyway, um, I got, I ended up in 2003. I had a really, no, 2002, I had a pretty good year. I did a USO tour that got me seen, um, weirdly enough, by a guy who was one of the troops who's friends with the Just for Laughs people. So that he said, oh, my, this funny girl is that came out to Qatar, and you got to see her. 
So then I got an audition for the Just for Laughs, and then I got accepted. And that changed everything because I had a really good set. I was on New Faces. I walked out of there with a manager and an agent, and they were all trying to do business with me. It was a really cool moment. Um, and then had immediate de- development deals uh, offered, but they never came through. So with ABC, NBC, CBS, they just they all went and talked about it, and then they never came through. But I did have my manager and agent. Now, David a, Letterman, Eddie Brooke, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, as a comic, when you were going to Montreal, and as a comic, you knew what Montreal can do for somebody, you know, because back then it was a lot different than now. I mean, things happen overnight. Were you very nervous on your set, or how did you take that? Because you were a skilled comic. Oh, man. Yes, what went through? Yes, but I come from, a, uh, my father was a professional athlete, so I come, then he went on to be a coach and stuff, so I come from that, you know, hike yourself up and face the challenge kind of thing. So I was petrified on the flight, and I was petrified all day long, but I had myself ready and amped for the show. And I was like, you just, it's a its a total, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to sound like a lunatic, but it's a total M&M, lose yourself moment. Do or die. You've been working your whole life for this, and you bet figure out how to do it. Now is your chance. Little did I know you get a million chances in a sense, but that was my main chance to do well. And... I was proud, but that was also a great graduating class of that going back. That that was uh, Al Madrigal, Ian Edwards. Um, who else was part of that? Uh, well, uh, Cat Williams was, but Cat dropped out because he got the deal. They signed his big deal on the way to the the actual show. So uh, there was a girl, Jamie. Oh, I forgot she's on. Uh, uh, Orange is the New Black now. Jamie Ben Denbo, that's her name. I mean, they're so we were really lucky to be part of that. And that's that's where Eddie Brill saw me. He put me on the board for Letterman. We kept, it was, you know, I wanted Letterman. The Tonight Show had made an offer, but I wanted Letterman. And then Letterman had his heart attack. And it kept getting pushed because they weren't putting comics on while they had guest hosts. And here we were almost a year out, and I still wasn't on the Tonight Show, said, we'll break you. They made a big deal about, like, people wanted to be broken. They wanted first-timers on their shows. And I I couldn't wait anymore, so I did the Tonight Show, and Jay was actually good enough to me to have me on three or four times. Why why did you want to do Letterman so bad? Was it just because you're a huge fan, or as a comic, did you think that was a better feather in the cap because after the regular Tonight Show had gone? It's a weird thing, you know, Jay was one of the first comics I ever saw live, um, so you would think that it was The Tonight Show, but for me, I just, I had watched Letterman, and it was a big deal for me to be able to stay up late and watch Letterman and then go to high school and talk about, I felt like a cool, you know, I felt like an adult when I watched Letterman, so there was something to me about the Letterman thing, and I think I kind of also got caught up in the New York, like, in my brain, I, there was enough whop in me still to go, if you can make it in New York, you know? <laughs> so, and then that was hard, too, because once I did my first Tonight Show, like, and that went really well. I mean, I've been lucky to capitulate on moments that count. Um, and don't get me wrong, trust me, I just had a set in Birmingham, Alabama, that made me go back and go back to the drawing board and try to re- rethink it. But, um, so it's not like I haven't, 
you know, failed at different times. But when opportunities have been presented, I've been pretty lucky to be able to walk through the door. But I didn't know what to do the day after the tonight, my first Tonight Show. Like, I was so depressed. It's funny, they have a show called Dying Up Here, and the guy killed himself. But I, I can so relate. Like, I, I watched it. As a matter of fact, Al is in it, which is funny. Um, but I didn't know what to do, Steve. Like, I, I walked around Los Angeles going, like, sad. Because that's it. Like, nobody, it wasn't like... My life didn't change overnight. The goal I had always set for myself, I accomplished. And what's next? Is there anything else? Like, I just didn't know what was coming. It's, you know? I mean, yeah, it's crazy. Because, you know, you think as, a, as when you're a true comic, that's your thing to be get onto the late night shows, you know? And then after that, if something happens, it's great. But uh, the comic always wants to get that, as you know, that goal. Now, that was what year was that? That was 2005? No, that was 2003. Okay. And it's, you know, we come from that time. That's the other thing. Like, I, I respect a lot of this comics of the comics, these new comics, because they do, they do so much entrepreneurially. We had to do so much just physically to be a comic. We wanted to be a comic. We had to physically drive somewhere. We couldn't send a link. We did the, you know, you did a guest set where you had to show up in Tulsa, Oklahoma for free or you had to find a friend with a double, like a VCR, so you guys could right. we could tape things together, right? And it cost you seven dollars a package to mail your whole package out if someone's going to watch it. But we also were sold this bill of goods that just be funny, write your act, be funny, and they will find you. And that's not the case anymore. But in the time, I kept thinking, this is, it. and I was, I was. I'm always, like, just on the edge of things. I feel like I'm almost the person that follows the Beatles. Like, I got to, to Montreal the year they weren't giving out development deals. I got to, the, you know, I, I did the Tonight Show when, we, or I did Last Comic when no one knew what reality was, you know? So we didn't get what we should have probably, what they should have done to save their network is make deals with everybody, and that's just not what they did. But Last Comic was, you know, you... You got recognized more from that, though, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, we were really lucky. That was a year that they had 17 million viewers at the end. So it changed things exponentially. That was definitely a line of demarcation in my career. And I was the least, you know, I think Bonnie and I had the least amount of credits at the time. You run two seasons? Uh, yeah, I was in season two, which was the big season with myself and Kathleen Madigan and Alonzo Bowden and John Heffron and Todd Glass and Gary Goldman, Bonnie McFarlane, Ant, Corey Hochul, Jay London, right? Is that everybody? Yeah, great group of people that ended up being like family to me. Um, but then we were in, they had a fake season where season one versus season two. And they decided, NBC decided to run it immediately after the Olympics. <laughs> and they they ended up pulling the show because there was no ratings at all. So what opportunities did you start getting? Did that, but after you said, you know, when you went to LA, you were a split week headliner. When did you actually move up the headliner? After, after Montreal, after the, the Tonight Show, or when did you sit there and say, the club said after she's the an established. After the Tonight Show, I became a headliner for sure. Full headliner, um, but low end, low end headliner. Um, I was the headliner before last comic. I like to say that people would show up and go, I don't know who she is, but we already have a sitter. 
Right. You know, uh, and I always hear that I don't usually like women, but you are funny kind of comment. Um, so then after the difference between last com the day before last comic aired and the week after it aired was that people actually bought tickets and have continued to buy tickets. I mean, they don't buy, like I used to, during last comic and for two years after, it would sell out before I even got there. I was not lucky enough to keep that audience that strong, but I still have a really solid fan base. Well, you said earlier in the interview that at one point in your career, you pulled out of your wheelhouse and now you're back in it. When, for your material, when did you pull out and why did you, and then what brought you back to the stuff that you must love? Well, I think right after last comic, when people, again, it was early onset of the internet, and I felt like people were making fun of me. Even even the comedians of comedy, Patton Oswalt and, and um, well, Maria was on stage, but she didn't say anything. Um, and uh, I forgot the other guy's name, Brian. Yeah, um, Hossein. Yeah, they, Brian, they, I had never met them, and they mocked me in their special. Like, I'm watching their special thinking, oh, my gosh, I love these guys. They're so funny, blah, blah. And I, and they mocked me. And they didn't say my name specifically, but they talked about last comic and the Italian one and the annoying and uh, Italian, Italian, Italian. And I was like, what? That, I mean, it hurt me, especially because it came from other comics. Like it really crushed me. So I thought, all right, I'm never going to talk about this again. I'm never going to say another word about a comic being Italian or families, or I'm just going to be sarcastic. I'm going to talk about you know, I never was dirty, so it's very hard for me to be dirty. I do, I can swear, but I'm never talk about sex stuff, really. Um, so, but I just kind of started being a little bit more topical and kind of mean spirited. And uh, one day, I just started. I'm, first of all, I saw Sebastian, and I'm like, "Wow, look at that guy making all that money off of the Italian people." <laughs> but, but, no, and then I just started, I mean, and then I started thinking, you know, I had my son, I'm like, why am I not talking about the things that are important to me? You know, I don't have to talk about mommy stuff. I'm not a mommy comic, but I am going to talk about what it's like to try to work and be pregnant. You know, I am going to talk about what it's like to get married and your husband snores and doesn't believe it. You know, that kind of stuff, so. What was it like performing when you were pregnant? Because I don't run into, I don't talk to a lot of uh, comics that have performed when they're pregnant. But what is that like? I mean, is it something that? Is, are you sometimes worried like the crowd's going to go, like the crowd may have a certain foreshadow before like of your material? I mean, how do you, as a comic, how do you adjust to that? Or you just sit there and really don't even acknowledge it? Or I mean, how would you work? How was like the first few nights you went on stage feeling when you were pregnant? Well, I hid that I was pregnant until I was five and a half months pregnant because I still was in L.A., and I didn't want, I didn't want to say anything, because I knew, I mean, I joke about it in my Netflix special, but it's the truth, I said, there was, I, I kept searching for someone to help me, like, to talk to about it, but all of my peers, uh, first of all, okay, so, if you were Joan Rivers, you had a baby, and you were pregnant, but she was Joan Rivers, I was no Joan Rivers, I'm not that, the staff, you know, my peers, most of their wives had their babies for them. So I had no, I, I didn't know what to do. And all I could, I knew the attitudes that prevailed in this business. And I knew if I said I was pregnant 
And it's exactly what happened. My agent said to me, I guess your career's over. And I, so I tried to continue on in spite of, sorry, the house phone is ringing. That's fine. <laughs> my house. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on for one second. I'll tell my son. This is why it's good to have a baby. Hold on. Luca. All right, sorry. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Happens. What are you going to do? I only think it's going to be on for a half hour, so. Oh, it's, it's an hour interview. But anyway, we're, we're almost done. So. No, but it's nice talking to you. So anyway, I just, I was on stage till the day before I gave birth because there's no, there's no, um, there's no maternity leave, you know? So I had to, I had to, I had to keep staying on stage. So that's where it worked out that my husband, who was a paid regular and had done comedy, went around the country with me. And I would just, I would just force, sometimes I would talk about being pregnant, sometimes I wouldn't. Sometimes I pretended to have a, a drink, you know, I'm like, oh no, this is just chubby. Like I just didn't, I just didn't want to be a mommy comic, but I had no choice. This is how I made my living. And especially at that point, how can I step away from it, you know? Well, you're, so you're, you're. I have no other thing. Yeah, you're out and you're and you're kicking butt and you're headlining. Now, when do you sit there and do you start getting tired of the road now that you had kids, or did you sit there and did you want to concentrate on acting? And when did you leave L.A. and why? Well, I left L.A. when I was pregnant because a man walked by in a three-piece suit, a briefcase, and a Superman cape, and I was like, I got to get the hell out of here. <laughs> I knew that I couldn't leave my son with. Quite honestly, I knew that I couldn't leave my son with a nanny. And my husband, like, I can't be on the road. That's how I make my living. That's the difference between me and I never got cast in anything, really. A few things here, there, a little, but nothing big. So every dollar that I have made, I have made from telling a joke. For the most part, 95% of the money that I have made is from telling jokes. So I didn't want to step on that. And I make a pretty good living, you know. So I thought, if I go to New York, it'll be easier. We'll have family around. They'll help. And then that obviously didn't work out. Then we came to this house in Pennsylvania. I still thought, let me just regroup. Let's figure it out. My parents moved here to help me. Then I got a television show based on me moving from um, Los Angeles, being a wife, a mother, and a comedian, trying to balance it all. And, you know, then that's just how, you know, you're here, and it makes sense for him. But... During the whole thing, I wrote, made a conscious effort to make my act as if we were all friends. And I just hadn't seen him for a while because that's what kept happening to me. Living in Pennsylvania or living in New York, I would run into old friends. Where I live in Pennsylvania is only an hour from where, an hour and 15 minutes from where I grew up. So I would constantly be telling them stories. And I'm like, this is how I need to write my act. I need to write it as if we're old friends. And I just haven't seen you for a while. So that kind of began the catharsis and the change. And comedy no longer was my first love. And that made it beautiful again. And I think that's when I really began to connect with the audiences. Because whatever desperation or need for attention was there to put me on stage at first, now has long been satiated. And now I'm just there. I'm taking a break by helping them take a break. Now, how did your reality show come up? How did that come about? Uh, 
these producers who had always wanted to do something with me called me, and I'm like, um, yeah, i got to be honest with you, I'm nine months pregnant. <laughs> and they were like, that's great, that's even better. So then they came out and shot a sizzle, you know, things take forever. My son was probably about nine months old, they shot a sizzle, and then, you know, just went from there. And then we sold walking around, and I was lucky enough to be the executive producer, and we shopped it, and I was able to be in on every single step of it. And I learned a lot, and then it got canceled right after the first season. Well, no, first we were put on hiatus. And um, then, then by the time they came back to me, I had already felt like it was canceled. Um, and when they wanted to come back and do it, my son was older, I realized that it had wreaked havoc because it was about me being a wife, a mother, and a comedian. But I didn't stop. When the crew left and my husband and my kid went to bed, I stayed up cleaning the house because our show, our house was going to be on TV the next day, <laughs> right? You know, like I don't want to. And then when they had three days off, I would get on a flight like they flight go work on the weekend. Then I'd get off the flight, come back to pull in the driveway, and the crew would be ready to go. So it was a, a hard year. To film those those seven episodes, eight episodes is what it was. Now, with the um, when did your Netflix? When did you put that special out? And and where did you record it? And how did you decide what material you would use on it? Well, the material was ready to go. Like I had I had shot a little special before, but it, uh, again, this is my I have a very Larry David life. I put uh, like fifteen thousand dollars of my own money into hiring a camera crew, putting this special together. Right after. So this is like 2012, I do this special, right? Like, get ahead of the game. My husband directs it. It's all, but it's not HD. And that's when they're transitioning everything to HD. So no one wants it. <laughs> like, so, I didn't know that you had to have HD. So I now, um, you know, so now I'm like, I have this. I already had enough material for that special. I'm writing more material as it goes through. Um, in 2013... I was with, um, what's Barry's? It's New Wave Entertainment. Barry but they, they work as Comedy Dynamics. Oh, Barry and Katz. So they, off, they kept telling me part of the reason that I went with them as management is they said that they were going to give me a special. So I, I said, where's my special coming? And one day I, was, I get a call and they go, how about in two weeks in Boston? And I go, don't usually comics get to, to figure their own specials? And they're like, well... You know, uh, if you want to do it, it's two weeks in Boston. I'm like, yeah, I love Boston. I'm not from there. They're honest people. I'll know right away if it's good or not. I'm ready to go. Let's go. And I lost as much weight as I could lose in two weeks. And that's that. <laughs> Were you comfortable when you got... How many shows did you shoot it over? Did you tape it for a few shows? or Just two. Okay. Did, did... Yeah, and we used actually all of the second show. Okay. Now, were you com were you happy the way it turned out? Yeah, with the exception, and I guess this becomes part of the thing, like, I didn't like how I looked, but that's partially my fault, because I have been so focused on being a comic. I didn't think things through. So what I said is, they said, what kind of set do you want? That was one cool thing. They were like, we'll build anything. I go, well, I don't need a set. I'm a stand-up comic. Get me a curtain. I go, but I do want a purple curtain. 
first of all, because I love Prince. Uh, but second of all, because I think it, like, connotates loyalty, right? So I was, like, I was all about, like, setting the tone and making people at ease and, and projecting, you know, a good image. So I get there, and I go, um, yeah, we couldn't get a purple curtain. I go, okay, uh, what does that mean? Well, here's what we're going to do. The curtain's red. We're going to put uh, gels over the lights, and we're going to turn it purple. I'm like, okay, great, right? I don't make any fuss. I'm no must, no fuss. Like, you can hear a lot of things about me. Whether people think I'm funny or not, you'll never hear someone act say that I'm like a diva. or I got, And that's, if you hear that, that's a complete lie. Okay. So I go, uh, I go, okay, great. Well, what I wasn't thinking is that when I put a gel over it to turn a cur- uh, red curtain purple, that gel's going to run on your face. So my black outfit looks like I'm wearing a brown pantsuit, right? Looks like a Hillary Clinton pantsuit. Looks like I have no makeup on at all because it washed me completely out. So I don't necessarily like that. But then I have to go back to the fact that I love that set. And I'll put that set up against anything because I had found out subsequently that I had liver disease. And my whole part was like, I want to have a legacy and to find the funny. So maybe I was a little heavy handed, I think, sometimes on that. But I refuse to let them edit it and take it out. There's like not an edit cut anywhere in that special. That's awesome. So now, now do you have another special on the horizon? I have it ready. I just have to find someone. So here's the deal. So uh, that special does well. It, I mean, as well as Netflix will tell you, they don't really tell you specifics, but uh, enough that at the time they were really interested. Comedy, Comedy Dynamics was going to do another special with me. Um, but I don't want to do it formulaically. I don't want to go to just some random theater. I don't, I want to go to my old high school. I was captain of the cheerleaders. We shot an episode of my television show at my high school. I want to go into the gym followed by the, you know, behind the band. I want to pull the bleachers out underneath the basketball court and do the special. You know, because I think that's where my demographic sits. My demographic sits in Facebook, reliving their high school years. So that's what I want to do. See, that's a great idea. That's like I always thought. You know, if I I was actually going to do a try to do a comedy tour because I don't really do comedy that much, but I wanted to get Joe Matarese, Rich Scheider, and a guy named Jay Black. I don't you, you probably know Jay, and we were, I was going to call South Jersey Boys because we're all from South Jersey instead of Jersey Boys. Right, and that's the perfect thing. Like now, I just moved back. I mean, I drove. The other day, I drove past my high school. Now, I haven't m- been back here. I mean, I was back here to see Joanne before I moved back, but for, for two years, pretty much. But I haven't been back for a long time. And I always thought that, you know, especially for our age, because we are Facebook, and Facebook has really brought us people you never, you didn't see for years together. I think we're most impacted doing it because we didn't grow up with it. But that's the thing where you'd want to do it at your high school. Like I, when I did Helium, it was the first time I was on stage in six months. There were seven people in the audience from my high school. I had no idea. And that's the thing. It's like the high school is the perfect angle. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got it. It's registered. So you can't, but no, I'm no. actually trying to work that on private funding. Cause you know, it's, it's so funny how like just people, people just want you to do it yourself. And then they're like, okay, if you do it, uh, then we'll look at it. And I'm just like, oh my God, I did this once already. I fell for this trick. Right. <laughs> I didn't have HD. I'm scared, you know? You gotta look we'll up, see. We'll you, see what happens. You gotta look up Jordan Brady and get him to direct it. 
Jordan's my friend. Okay, he I'm, is, uh, I was on. Uh, I am Battle Comic. Okay, yeah, yeah. He's he's awesome, and I know he did Bamford's uh, special Insider House. I mean, Jordan's just got a great mind. So so now, do you are you still going out on the road a lot, or what's it like now that you? Yeah, know? all the time. That's how I support my family. You know what I mean? Like that's what people like. No, it's funny. I always hear people say that. I'm like, no one asks a doctor if they're going to give up. A, a, an attorney I, I, that's kind of where i am right now like it's like a doctor or, or an attorney you know what i mean like i don't have any marketable skills i make a really good living i hate i hate the travel i become that old that old lang syne song you know the audiences are heavenly but the traveling is hell but what can you do like that's i gotta go meet them where they are i just did uh i just did this weird thing i had a corporate on chicago on a saturday then i was in Charlotte, North Carolina on Sunday, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, Birmingham, Alabama, which is where I had that horrible set, uh, Huntsville, Alabama, Nashville, and then Pittsburgh. Uh, the rest of them were all good. Birmingham, I think, was just, as a million comics will tell you, sometimes it's about more than just the jokes. The headliner hadn't been told that there was a special event happening that night. So he showed up. So they told him, just go ahead in front of her and you do 20 minutes. So it was an MC, a feature, and the headliner packed himself into 20 minutes. And he was hysterical, by the way. So, so funny. But three urban acts and then me. And then this guy was like, literally our cities, like at the next, you know, Kevin Hart, Cat Williams, physical, the, the Dom Irera you know, pentameter, seven sugars, seven sugars, what you trying to give me, diabetes, you know? <laughs> and it was so, it was so, it was so hard to follow, but it, it was really good because I've been spoiled, you know what I mean? Like, you need, I guess you need that humbling thing every once in a while to go, all right, am I really in this? Am I really continuing to do this? Or am I just, you know, I certainly wasn't phoning it in, and I certainly don't phone it in anymore. I mean, not that I have in a long time, but I have to keep pushing. Do you really want to continue being a comic? And I, ans I answered that, yeah, yes, if you wondered. <laughs> right. Well, that's awesome, man. You know, I'm glad we got to do this because, you know, I've been interviewing a lot of musicians lately, and I love the heavy metal musicians because that's – I love that. But it's great. I had, You know, I had Freddie Stoller on a few weeks ago, and it's always good to talk to a comic who's – Ben, you know, knows what comedy is. So I want to thank you for coming on. Now, now your Twitter, I know you I tweet a lot. It. You tweet a lot. I know you're very good with the Twitter. Tell everyone your Twitter handle. It's just Tammy Pescatelli. <laughs> That's it. Well, you know what? I don't, it's not that I tweet a lot. Here's what happens. I connected my Facebook to my Twitter. So wherever, which if I, I think in my head, I'm only posting on one or two every once in a while, but it goes on both. So it kind of, it's a little trick that us non-millennials do because I don't think every moment of my life is fascinating. Right. <laughs> so people follow her on Twitter. Go to Netflix and you can find her special. And Netflix, you mean every yeah. Kindle. And you, you, Please. Yeah, so check her out. And uh, so, yeah, people, so go to her, uh, follow her, go YouTube her act, just watch her act, get out there, see her when she's in your city. 
And that's what you got to do. So that's Tammy Pescatelli. Yeah. Follow her. I'm Steve Cooper. Follow me. I'm at Cooper Talk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 600 episodes. You can email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. Also, Instagram is coopertalk1, where I post a lot of pictures of food because, as you know, it was about five years ago when I had my heart condition. And I got out of the hospital and I wrote a cookbook. So you'll see pictures from that book. Go to stopthesalt.com. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at barnesandnoble.com. But if you get it at stopthesalt.com, one, I'll sign it for you, and two, I make more money. So that's what it's all about. So people, go follow Tommy Pescatelli. Watch your Netflix special. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next week.